<clears throat> well, thank you. Thank you, Billy. It's really a pleasure to be back with you and to continue this series. Last week, I shared with you that while at Dallas Seminary quite a few years ago, had an experience that really changed my life, changed my ministry, and it was life-changing. I actually wrote a book I never planned to write back then called Sharpening the Focus of the Church and started a church I never planned to start, which was the first Fellowship Bible Church, which, to my surprise, expanded into a movement. And then uh, the great surprise was after having been a professor for 20 years, 13 at Moody and seven years full-time at Dallas, I became a full-time church planning pastor which was really life-changing, life-deepening. It's been a great learning experience over the last 30 years. But in starting a new church, one of the things I was really concerned about as I shared with this small group, really, that, that started the church was, how do we know if we're really measuring up to what God wants us to be? How do we measure success? How do we know we're walking in the will of God? And one of the things that emerged in my study and <clears throat> our study together was that there are three qualities that we need to develop as a body, as a local body, as a local community. And last week I shared with you from a number of passages of Scripture that faith, hope, and love is that criteria. In fact, I, let me just review one passage that's rather comprehensive. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, a church that he and Silas and Timothy started, this is what he said, and it's very clear what he was thankful for. He says, we recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, your hope your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I try to demonstrate from Scripture in a number of passages, a number of the Pauline letters particularly, that work of faith really involves all aspects of our life together as we walk in the will of God. Lifetime goal. The love, the labor motivated by love actually refers to the way in which we together reflect Jesus Christ in all of our relationships. A lifetime goal until Jesus takes us home. Our endurance inspired by hope really relates to our stability in Christ, our security in Christ. As Paul said, we're just not tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. We know what we believe and we know that faith and what we believe is true to the Scriptures, faith, hope, and love. But this raises a question, which I raised at the end of my message last week. If faith, hope, and love are a reflection of the fullness of Christ, which I believe it is, according to what Paul wrote in Ephesians, then how do we produce these qualities? How do we produce faith, hope, and love? Now, to answer that question, I believe that we have one passage 
that really outlines in a very definitive way how we're to produce faith, hope, and love. And it happened in the first church. That shouldn't surprise us, the church in Jerusalem. And Luke recorded what happened. So if you have your Bibles, your iPad, or your phone, or wherever you have the content of Scripture, would you turn to Acts chapter 2? And we want to look particularly at verses 42 through 47 this morning, because I think we have the answer to that question. Now, let me set the stage. The Holy Spirit had come on the day of Pentecost. Thousands of God-fearing Jews had come from all over the Roman world for our 50-day celebration. It was an annual celebration for those who were God-fearing. And for those outside of Jerusalem, Judea, it was, they're called Grecian Jews from all over the Roman world. They celebrated. They worshiped. But on the last day, unexpectedly, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and the church was born. And the Holy Spirit came and there was a mighty rushing wind. And as people came to that place, they saw these Galileans, which were all of the apostles, 11 of them at that time. And it looked like tongues of fire on their head. And they began to speak the languages of all these people that had come from all over the Roman world. The unbelievers said they were drunk. Peter got up and said, we're not drunk. And then he began to explain what happened. That this Jesus called the Christ, who had traveled for three and a half years, who was crucified in Jerusalem, who had been raised from the dead, was indeed the promised Messiah and the Savior of the world. Now notice what happened in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. So those who accepted his message, that is, Peter's message, were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. Now, one of the first things we notice, obviously, from this passage is the church is made up of people who believe in Jesus Christ as being the Savior of the world. It's a community of people who are following Jesus Christ. But what happened to these people? It's interesting that Luke goes on to record for us in a very specific way. And in verse 42, we read, they, that is, these new believers, these 3,000 that were added to the 120, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to Peter, to John, and to the other apostles. Now, to really understand the involvement here, what's happening, is we need to go back to the upper room. When Jesus said he was going to go away and he told these 11 men, because at this point, Judas is already split. And they were nervous because he said, I'm going to go away, but I'll come again. They were still nervous. And Jesus said, I'm going to send you another counselor. And in verse 26, and there are many references here to the spirit of truth, but just this one text gives us tremendous insight. But the counselor of the Holy Spirit Three times in the passage, he's called the parakletos, the counselor. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. 
He will teach you all things. Now remember, he's talking to these 11 men. He will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Well, what is happening on the day of Pentecost is that this has happened. This counselor has come. And the apostles, beginning with Peter, begin to unfold truth, New Testament truth, that they didn't comprehend or understand. Much of what they had learned from Jesus for three and a half years, traveling with him, hearing him teach, they had forgotten or they didn't understand or they distorted. And so Jesus said, when this spirit of truth comes, he's going to remind you of everything that I have told you. And I now, at this moment in their history, begin to understand some of the things that Jesus had taught them. Now, one thing they didn't understand, even when Jesus was ready to go back to heaven, there on the mountain, they said in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still were not seeing Jesus coming to us, the whole world. And Jesus said, to them, it's not for you to know the times or season, but you go back and wait in Jerusalem, and then you will find out what the plan is when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so they obeyed. And so basically, as Peter begins to teach, and John, as they move through Jerusalem, and the apostles out from Jerusalem, they begin to understand the great mystery that Paul talks about that was revealed. Jesus came to build his church. He told them, I will build my church. They now begin to understand and they begun to unfold this through what is called the apostles' teaching. And ultimately, they first spoke and then they wrote. And the essence of the New Testament is the apostles' teaching. God's gift to us, God's plan for the church of Jesus Christ. And so, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but notice, not only did they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship. In other words, the koinonia, the biblical word for fellowship relationships. And as you read on in this passage, this fellowship consisted of four significant aspects and relationships and experiences. You could actually read this, I believe. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, that is, to the breaking of bread. As they broke bread from house to house, they were eating together. That was part of their fellowship. They devoted themselves to prayer. And now, in verse 44, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possession and the property and distributed their proceeds to all as any had need. And here, we need to understand the cultural dynamic. Remember, they had come from all over the New Testament world, God-fearing Grecian Jews, and they stayed there for 50 days. 
the 50th day, they had their bags packed, ready to go back. And suddenly, this mighty phenomena, the counselor comes, the Holy Spirit comes, the mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire, Peter's message. What would you do? I know what I'd do. I'd stay there. And that's exactly what they did to see what was going to happen next. Because God is unfolding his revelation to these people. But while they stayed there, the people in Jerusalem, Judea said, that's great, we'll take care of you. And so they were sharing generously with these people, waiting for the next step in God's revelation. Distributed the proceeds to all who had need. And we read on. And every day, verse 46, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, broke bread from house to house, ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God, which was also a part of that koinonia, that fellowship. Now, you look back over that passage, I think we can summarize it with four, four experiences that formed that fellowship. They ate together. And again, I think if you really want to understand what was going on there, you've got to go back to the upper room. You've got to go back to where Jesus was having the Passover meal with the 12 disciples and then the 11 when he began to teach them and said, the bread I'm sharing is my body, which is going to be broken. And the, this wine represents the blood that I'm going to be shed, be shedding for all of you for the sins of the world. And you see, those elements there in the Passover meal, the bread, the cup, probably four cups of wine at different periods of time, with a meal in between, form the basis of their experience. And when Jesus Christ left the earth, the Holy Spirit came, what they continued to do was to move from the Passover meal to a simple communal meal. And personally, I think that as they were breaking bread from house to house, every time they had a meal and they broke the bread, they remembered the body of Jesus. Every time they drank from the cup, they remembered the blood of Jesus. It was an integrated part of the meal as they ate together. In the New Testament and other places called the agape. Eventually that form changed because of persecution. Went to a simple communal meal, which now we call the Lord's Supper. But initially it was a meal. They ate together and they prayed for one another. A whole new experience. Even the apostles had to say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. They didn't know how to pray for each other. Their thoughts about prayer was being represented by the priests who would go in to the temple and represent them. They did not understand the concept of the body of Christ and praying for each other until the church was born. And it's happening all over Jerusalem. And they're caring for one another, as I said, through this, sharing their material possessions of the need at that time. And they praise God together, obviously teaching one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in their hearts to the Lord. And I want you to notice that these four elements that made up this koinonia were interrelated as they ate together, that's horizontal. They're remembering Jesus. As they prayed for one another, they were talking to God. 
as they were sharing their material possessions, they perhaps remembered Jesus saying, even a cup of cold water given in my name, I will not forget. That was worship. And as they taught one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, they were making melody in their hearts to the Lord. These were integrated, interrelated experiences. The koinonia. But not only did they continue in the apostles' teaching, and in this koinonia, something else happened. That was an ongoing experience. Look at Acts 2, 46 and B. Getting continuity, they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God, and enjoying the favor of all the people. Who are all the people? All the people in Jerusalem that were looking in on this dynamic experience of these 3,000 all over Jerusalem as they were going through these experiences. And we read, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. They had a witnessing experience with the unsaved world through these previous experiences. Now to understand this, again, Continuity is so important in the New Testament story. So if you go back to the upper room once again, where Jesus was meeting now with the eleven, definitely, Judas is no longer there. And interestingly, there had been an argument that had broken out among these eleven men, which must have been very disappointing to Jesus. And probably James and John were right in the middle of it arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That was their view of why Jesus came. Who's going to be on the right hand? Who's going to be on the left in his kingdom? In the middle of that, Jesus washed their feet to illustrate servanthood. And then he turned to them and he said, Men, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I've loved you, And he just had served them and washed their feet. You are also to love one another. And by this, everyone, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And as they left that upper room and headed towards the Kidron Valley, Jesus prayed for those men. And for us. John 17, they're walking along the night, descending the Kidron Valley and going over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus was praying and he says, Father, I pray not only for these, that is these 11 guys behind me who are nervous and upset and really quite ignorant yet. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's us. How did we come to faith? Through the apostles' teaching through the Word of God, through the New Testament story, through their carrying out the Great Commission. But you see, this is what has happened initially right in Jerusalem. 
It's happening. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you. May they also be in us. Why? So the world will believe that you have sent me. What has just happened in Jerusalem? They were continuing in the apostles' teaching. They were continuing in this koinonia and fellowship. And they were having favor with all the people. And those daily were being saved. Why? Because of Jesus' new commandment. They were obeying it. They were loving one another as he had loved them. And they were demonstrating unity and oneness of heart and soul and mind. And it impacted all of those who were watching. And across that bridge... They shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and people were being saved. The next number is 5,000 households that believe. God blessed this new church. Now, I believe out of this passage comes a very important principle for us. I call it a principle live by. To produce faith, hope, and love which God says we should, the true measure of our success as a church, an ongoing lifetime experience together, to produce faith, hope, and love in our local churches, we must consistently provide all believers with these three vital experiences. And that's what I shared with this group of people when we started this new church. We want to produce faith, hope, and love, and we want to have these three experiences. Namely, number one, stating in terms of application to us today, vital learning experiences with the Word of God. That's the essence of the New Testament. Plus, we have the old. God's truth. God's revelation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We must build on the Word of God. That's foundational. That's why it's mentioned first, I think, in the sequence here. I think that's God's inspired sequence. They continued in the apostles' teaching. But they also continued in fellowship, vital relational experiences with one another and with God, integrated experiences, eating together, praying, sharing, praising God. And thirdly, we must provide people with vital corporate and personal witnessing experiences with the unsaved world. And this is what we see happening in Jerusalem, which I believe is a model for churches of all time until Jesus takes us home. Because those experiences are verified again and again as you read through the book of Acts and as you read through the epistles. And to me, These experiences are just as relevant and absolute today as the day they were worked out in the lives of these New Testament Christians. But that leads to another principle. But it also is predicated on a question. What forms and structures do we need to have these three experiences? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. It may surprise you, but 
The Bible doesn't tell us. Now, there are some people who try to say the Bible tells us, but they always end up superimposing culture on Scripture. You see, this was an absolute divine plan not to give us form and structure in the Bible. You cannot find it in Acts 2.42 through 47. You cannot find it throughout the rest of the New Testament. Why? Because if God had given us form and structure, we would absolutize it and we'd lock ourselves into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. We'd lock ourselves into the New Testament world, into Asia and the Middle East. Why has Christianity spread throughout the whole world? Because God gives us absolutes that are never changing it sets us free in the non-absolutes, namely in form and structure and methodology, to be the church God wants us to be at any moment in history. So here's the principle to live by. We must develop form and structure at any moment in history in various places in the world that are both culturally relevant and in harmony with biblical function. And I believe Paul related that principle when he said this in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I've become all things, all things, to all people everywhere, so that I may by every possible means save some. Now, Paul never compromised the absolutes when he said, I've become all things. But he was always free in the non-absolutes, in the era of form and structure and methodology. In essence, I believe Paul is saying this, and I think the whole New Testament says this. Absolutes focus on the message. Biblical functions is what we see in Acts 2.42. And principles that emerge from those functions are absolute and should never change. They're just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. However, the non-absolutes, the means that Paul referred to, the forms and structures are cultural and should change, but they should always provide believers with these three vital experiences. Think about that. As far as I know, every other religious book in the world, other than the Bible, locks their people into culture. The Bible never locks us into culture. We live in culture and above culture to be the people that God wants us to be. Now, as you look back, and at the present, but let's look back for a moment. I call it lessons from history. One of the first lessons from history, and you can see it very clearly, and you can see this beyond the church. You can see this in social history. The study of people groups. All human beings tend to fixate on forms and structures, and as Christians, we're not exempt. That's very easy to do. We develop ways of doing things that make us feel good and secure. But if we're not careful, we'll forget why we developed that particular form and structure. And we begin to serve the means rather than the end. 
we begin to serve the form, the structure, which leads us to another lesson in history as we look back. And this focuses on believers. As believers, we also get confused between those things that should change and those things that should never change. Now, the reasons for that. Number one, we haven't taken a close look at Scripture. We haven't understood this important differentiation between function and form. And the freedom that God gives us to be absolutely biblical in our form because we are carrying out biblical function. The challenge is to make sure that that is the best form for any given particular function at any moment in history. We get confused. And the other thing, it relates to our sense of security. Because anytime you make a change, I don't care what the change is, there's an element of crisis or change or fear or anxiety, depending on the nature. And so consequently, we need to be clear in our thinking as believers, what is absolute, what is not absolute, what is supercultural and biblical, and what is cultural, and what is designed by God to be a freedom, to be all that he wants us to be in any given place in the world, so that we might carry out the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a third lesson. We not only tend to fixate on form and structure, but we choose to emphasize one or two of these experiences rather than balancing all three. I can take you to churches that would say, oh, we are committed to vital learning experiences with the Word of God. And that's their focus. And if you look carefully at their structures, they neglect the second experience, the relationships and witness. I can take you to churches that emphasize number two, vital relational experience with one another, with God, strong emphasis on experience, but they neglect the Word of God. The focus is on what they feel, what they experience, And that's good, except we got to check all that experience against the criteria of what God says is biblical experience. And I can take you to churches that focus on number three. Strong emphasis on reaching the seeker. Strong emphasis on soul winning. And that's great because that's the great commission. But they neglect the word many times and they neglect relationships. And so if you're not careful, you can have a church that's a mile wide and an inch thick. And God wants us to have a church a mile wide and a mile deep. And that will only happen when we have these three experiences built in to our structure. And that's the message, I think, that comes from the New Testament. That's the answer, basically, to the question, how do we produce faith, hope, and love? We need these three vital experiences and in balance. In essence, that's what I shared with that group of people when we started our first church. And over the years, as I pastored that church and other churches that I started, 
I made a practice of once a year to go back to Acts 2, 42 and 47 and say, folks, let's take a look at what God says should never change. Those three vital experiences. But I then said, let's take a look at how we're doing that. Are our forms still relevant? Let's not change to change, but let's change to be relevant to the culture in which we live. Because that's God's plan, as He's given it to us in Scripture. And so today, I'm excited to still deliver that message. Because I believe it is just as relevant today as 2000 years ago. Just as relevant as when I started my first church in 1972. And that's what helps us to be in the process of developing faith, hope, and love. But let me set the stage for the message next week because that's not all there is to it. How does this happen? And I want to take you back to Ephesians chapter 4. And there, remember, Paul said that he has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry until we all measure up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he ends that passage by saying, from him, Christ, the whole body, Paul's using that metaphor, the whole spiritual body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love. That's growth, maturity. Love is the greatest of these. Faith, open love, love's the greatest. By the proper working of each individual part. Now, here's the question. What is the proper working of each individual part? The body will not build itself up in love apart from the proper working of every individual part. What does that mean? Well, the Bible is filled with answers to that question. And next week, we'll take a look at some of the most foundational truths that Paul was referring to when he talks about the functioning body of Jesus Christ. Um, as Billy said, I did bring along a book, uh, in fact, a bunch of books, which I want to make available to you as a gift. It's called The Measure of the Church, or A Church, and it'll give you a ton of more biblical data that I can give you in these two messages. And uh, we simply, from my ministry, want to make these available to you, and they're out in the visiting area or the guest area, so please feel free to pick up a copy as long as, as long as they last. But again, thank you for your attendance and your encouragement, and join with me as we pray. Father, I just want to thank you for the Word of God. Where would we be without your revelation that we can trust? Thank you for this church that believes in the Word of God. 
the whole Word of God. We want to be people, Father, that grow in faith and in hope and in love. The greatest of these. We pray this in the name of our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all the people said, Amen.